Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Take your Bibles and uh, open up to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. And uh, does anyone need a Bible? Put your hands up and we've got ushers who will get you a, a Bible if you need one. Okay, we want to just want to make sure everyone's got a copy of God's Word. Doesn't matter if it's a hard copy or if it's a digital copy. We just want you to have your eyes on Scripture. And uh, Galatians chapter 5. And we have been walking chapter by chapter through the book of Galatians for the past several weeks. And uh, we're going to continue. This is going to take us through the month of November. And uh, we have been using kind of an interesting model to do this. And so I'm going to uh, give you your weekly quiz, okay? And if you haven't been with us or don't have any idea what these letters stand for on the screen... You're off the hook this week and this week alone, okay? After this, you are, you are, you are no longer off the hook. You gotta quiz yourself, alright? And, uh, some of you may be getting tired of hearing this, but by the end of this, my goal is that it will just be ingrained into you and you'll be able to go, oh, I just know every time I open up the Bible, I think this is the order I need to do this in. So I'm going to count to three. I want you to speak these out, what they stand for, loudly and proudly. Okay? So here we go as church. One, two, three. Observation, interpretation, application. This was coined by a guy named Howard Hendricks in his uh, book, Living by the Book. And it is a systematic process that I'm encouraging you to go through Not just when we're here, but more importantly, when you open the Bible yourself, when you study Scripture, to actually take note and go through this process of evaluating, okay, what is here, what do I see, then moving on and saying, okay, of these things I see, what do they really mean, what's really being communicated, and then finally, when we get to the end of all of this, lastly, asking How does this apply to my life right now? What is the application for the church today? And many times, the better question is, what is the application for the specific audience that this was written to when it was penned? And from that, we could determine what the application is for us. So, week to week... I hope this is becoming ingrained into you. I pray that you're using this beyond this time, that it becomes just a part of what you're navigating and processing through even as you open Scripture and read it for yourself, all right? Now, if you haven't already done this, I challenge you in the next few weeks, go through and read the whole book of Galatians, chapter 1 through chapter 6. You're going to get a better picture. Just read nonstop. Go front to back. Um, you can read it in one setting or you can break it up. You could do one chapter a day if that works better for you. Read the whole letter. You're going to get an idea of what is Paul writing here in its entirety. 
Okay, I don't want you to miss portions of this. And some of you, as we jump into Galatians 5 today, if you haven't been with us for our Galatians study, there's some of the background here that's really important to lead up to Galatians 5 that you're not just not going to be aware of. All right. And so if that's you this week, your challenge is to read the whole letter of Galatians because it's going to bring some things to light that maybe you just aren't aware of. So what I'm going to do uh, to start us off today is I'm going to read uh, the first half of the section we're going to be studying together. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to go back and we're going to look at this a little more specifically and come to some observations and look at some specific things, seek to draw some understanding and some application as well. So let's start Galatians 5 verse 1 says, for freedom, everyone say freedom, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through Love, Father, as we unpack this together, may you be the focus of our attention. May you open our eyes to see and understand the depth of your word. And may we not simply be hearers of the word and deceive ourselves, but that we would do what it says. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, more specifically, in this first couple of verses... He starts off with this very direct statement that correlates from chapter 4. And uh, what, we, what we note from chapter 4 and the end of chapter 4 was this, uh, this allegory, this picture that Paul paints using the historical example, the historical narrative of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and the two sons born in that historical narrative... Isaac and Ishmael, okay? And in, as you read the end of chapter 4, what you find is this picture painted of the slave versus the free. That which was done in the flesh versus that which is done through the promise or the covenant that was given to Abraham by God that God would ultimately bless all nations through his family, okay? Now, coming into this, and distinguishing between the slave, that which is of the flesh, and the free, that which is of the promise, he then makes this statement, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not, everyone say not, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There's a contrast here that we see going on between that person who's living as one who's free in Christ and the one who is still in slavery. And the challenge specifically there becomes, do not, and he's speaking to the churches, plural, of the region of Galatia, 
Churches, plural, do not go back. Do not resubmit yourself to a yoke of slavery, but recognize that Christ has set you free, and so stand firm in that. Root into that freedom. In verse 2, he goes on to really give an example of what, what might they return to, okay? What is the bondage or the slavery that they might be returning to? So he says, look, I, Paul, say to you, so we know this is Paul directly talking to the churches in Galatia. If you don't know who Paul is, you need to make a note and go and read Acts chapter 9 this week. And understand, who is this guy named Paul? Why is he important? Why should I even care what he has to say? And he says to them, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, if you were listening as we read through or following along in those first six verses, you see this word circumcision show up multiple times. In the next section, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, in verse 3, there's a little point here, if I'm doing my observation work, this word again, we see repeated, not just in, uh, he doesn't just say this in verse 2 of chapter 5, but he says, I testify again. And when we see something repeated, what should we do? We stop, everyone say stop. We stop and we take note of that because if something's repeated multiple times, it's important. It's something I should take note of, that I should seek to understand why is this important. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, as you have been trained, when we see a word repeated, we should mark that down in our observation and then seek to do some interpretive work to understand what in the world is the significance of this. My guess is that you did not wake up this morning and prepare to, church, prepare to come to church and learn about circumcision today. Nevertheless, we're going to talk about circumcision today, okay? And this, is, this really, realistically isn't something you hear talked about theologically in the church very often. As sad as that is, the reality is most of you probably would not be able to identify a a pattern of why is this even important. We may be able to testify that it's here, but what's the significance of that? Okay? So, in order to understand the significance of this, we really have to go back. And what we go back to is Genesis 17. This is where God initiates the practice, the physical practice of circumcision with Abraham. Now, what's significant about this, and I'm going to do a little pop quiz for you here, okay? Where is it that the, the Abrahamic covenant is spoken? What, what passage of scripture, if you could give me the book and the chapter, where is the Abrahamic covenant found? Speak it out. Genesis what? Genesis 12, and then it's reiterated where? 15. Good. Excellent. Okay. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, God makes this promise with Abraham. It's then in Genesis 16 that the historical narrative that's talked about in chapter 4 of Galatians takes place. 
So Genesis 15, God initiates and reminds Abraham, I'm going to fulfill this promise through your family. In Genesis 16, we see Abraham and Sarah get a little impatient. They take matters into their own hands. They go, well, maybe we're supposed to do this another way. Maybe this promise is going to be fulfilled another way. Because you know what? We're getting old. We haven't had any kids. What's, what does God do? Is God, really, there was doubt, okay? Is God really going to fulfill the promise that he said he's going to fulfill? So 16, they take matters into their own hands. Ishmael is born via Hagar. And God has to reiterate to Abraham, Abraham, no, I am going to fulfill this promise I made to you. And in chapter 17, we see God Tell Abraham, you and every member of your family from here on out is to be circumcised of the flesh and this becomes a part of their culture. Now, the reality is in Genesis 17, it does not give us, God doesn't give a reason per se to go, this is why I'm going to have you do this. But what we do know is that the promise of God here is not something that is only brought about via circumcision, because God spoke the promise years earlier that we see in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. And so in the midst of this, we have to wonder, what what is the reason for this physical representation of God's covenant promise? Because it really distinguished or set apart these people from other nations, and anyone who stepped in to be a part of this nation of people through the line of Abraham was to be circumcised. It was a mark to say, really to identify, and to remind people, you are a child of the promise. Now, over time, people took this in both the right ways and the wrong ways. Over time, losing, realistically, the entire reasoning by which God implemented this, which being a reminder of the promise he'd made, that ultimately required faith, right? Abraham, it was said that God counted it to him as righteousness because he believed he had faith in the promise God had made. In the New Testament, it becomes clear That circumcision is a point of contention. This becomes a battleground between what is known... They they even separated groups of people. The circumcision and the uncircumcision. This group of people and this group of people. And the the religious leaders of the time are going, this this has got to be a a part of what you do. And and you aren't actually redeemed if, if this isn't what you have done. And in fact, if we look at Acts 15, it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, and they say, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Whoa! Hold the phone. Now, this brings about this kind of a a, a really evident distinction that we can make, and really to determine when... Does something become legalism in the church? When does something cross a line of no longer being healthy and and losing any significance and just becoming legalistic practice? Because the reality is, church, 
whether we realize it or not, you and I like legalism. We like it because it gives us structure. And we like to have rules to follow. It makes our job a lot easier. Well, either you're following the rules or you're not. And so in reality, the Pharisees in Scripture get a really bad rap because they were going completely against the gospel message that Jesus was proclaiming. But in all reality, whether we realize it or not, you and I are a lot more prone to be Pharisees than we are to model Jesus. Why? Because in our flesh, it is way easier for us to look at a list of rules to follow than to have faith in a God who is promised. It's way easier. And in this same setting, it was way easier for the religious leaders of this time in the New Testament to go, if you're not circumcised, you're not saved. And in verse 5, it says, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, a, a, a new language started to form when it came to circumcision. And if you were to go to your concordance, or you were to go to a Bible dictionary, and you were to look, where is this word used? You would not just find it in the Old Testament. But in fact, you would find this even in the New Testament letters written to the churches. But more specifically, an example is Colossians 2. It's a different type of circumcision that is talked about. And brings some light to what is the significance here and why should I care? It says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision that is made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now here is a whole new concept that still uses the same term, the circumcision, but in a much deeper sense, the circumcision of the heart. Now clearly, they are not referring to a physical procedure that is done. Praise God. Okay? It even says, this is a circumcision that is done without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. Now, I just want to emphasize for a minute here, this is a perfect example, church, at why we, as a body of believers, practice water baptism, full immersion water baptism, as not a saving act, but as a representation of what has been done in Christ. Not with human hands, but through Christ. And why, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and have never been baptized, I challenge you to come talk to me about that, because we need to fix that. It's not something that changes your status in eternity, but it is an outward expression, a sign of saying, I am buried with Christ and raised to new life, so that I can walk in newness of life. And this is symbolic of the circumcision of the heart, that which is done without hands. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith 
in the powerful working of God who raised Him, who raised Christ from the dead. Now, from all of this, okay, and looking back at Galatians 5, there is a main point of application I hope you start to see when we observe and we interpret what is circumcision, what's the significance of that. And that, that application is, is this, church. Faith is enough. Nothing else is necessary. Faith is enough. And if we look at Romans 5, it talks about how those who were dependent on circumcision, one, were obligated to keep the whole law. In verse 4, it says, you are severed from Christ. Why? You who would be justified by the law. Now, if you recall in Galatians 2, Paul specifically stated that if there was a law that could bring about righteousness, then salvation would indeed be by the law. But he says there's not. There's no amount of rules. There's nothing. There's no amount of anything you can do of your own strength and power that is enough to count you as righteous before a holy God. And in verse 5, he clarifies that of Galatians 5. For through the Spirit, by what? By faith. Everyone say faith. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness that's to come. Because we would identify, right, that in Christ we are justified, but we are a long way from being holy in and of ourselves. Correct? We have the stamp of the Spirit in our lives, the security of our adoption. Paul talks about that here in Galatians. That in Christ we're adopted as brothers and sisters of children of the Most High, and that we're co-heirs with Christ by faith. Not by anything that we've done to deserve that. By faith. For in Christ Jesus, get this, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith is enough. Now, I want to put a caveat here, okay? Paul clarifies in Romans chapter 6, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And his response to answer his own question is a double negative in the original language. It's like, no, 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 don't do that. And every time I read that, I think, I feel like I say this to my kids, right? Over and over, I tell them no, and then no, no. They've got whatever breakable item and they're standing on the couch. No, 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 right? <laughs> and Paul's got the same kind of emphasis here in Romans 6, where he's going, you're saved by grace through faith. Does that mean you should just continue in sin? Because, oh, I have faith. I have faith. I believe. No, no. In recognition of what I have been given in Christ, my goodness, we should spend the rest of the breath in our lungs seeking in everything we have to serve Him. Recognizing that the circumcision of the heart is a transformation. It's an internal change in my life. 
And there are people, church, there are people who believe that they have salvation who are deceived. And that's not me saying that. That's Matthew 7 saying that. That on that day, the day of judgment, there will be many who say to God, that Satan, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things in your name? And he will say to them, I never knew you away from me. Church, may we not simply be people who can say the right things and give the appearance that our faith is truly in the Most Holy God, but that our lives would reveal a transformation that's taken place and a distinction from the rest of the world. Faith is enough. Only you can determine whether that faith is genuine. I can't do that. Nobody else sitting next to you can do that. Only God can judge in eternity whether you actually have faith and belief. And coming here and hearing someone talk about it and saying, Amen, yes, that's truth, is not enough. You have to decide to believe that it's true. And to have faith in the only one who can save you. Faith is enough. Nothing else is necessary. Now let's read on in Galatians 5. In verse 7, he says, You were running well. Now, what tense is this, English people? Past tense is not a good thing. Okay? You were running. Back there, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not, everyone say not. It's not from Him who calls you. That is, it is not God's fault that you have failed to continue running well. And he makes this statement in verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now I'm curious, how many of you are bakers? Raise your hands. Don't be ashamed. Okay? I am, I am, the, I am the proud baker in our home. I love baking. Okay? I absolutely love baking. My wife is the master cook and I am the baker. It works out really well. Okay? And actually, funny story, side note, that actually started because as a kid, um, while my mom was homeschooling us, I convinced myself that if I baked some desserts, I would get out of doing my schoolwork when I was supposed to. Funny, funny end of that story, she, my mom was much wiser than me because she ended up with free brownies that she didn't have to make and I still had to do my school. So, Anyway, I love to bake, but how many of you have accidentally put way too much salt in a recipe? Has anyone done that? Okay, you do that, and you take that first bite, and it's not like it's just one corner of that, or one cookie that's tainted by that salt, right? Everything is ruined! And you find yourself coughing and like, oh, give, give me some water. That's really bad. Right? The same thing happens in the church, okay? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. What does that really mean? It means that whoever was hindering the churches in Galatia from obeying the truth was ultimately the extra salt that was messing with everything else going on. Now, church family, this is an example of why, as a church body, 
that we emphasize the importance of membership with us. It's not because we want you to be part of some elitist club, okay? It's because at the end of the day, we see an importance here that those people who are leading, who are making decisions for the future of the church, who can help to bring someone into this teaching role, that they are people who are grounded in the truth of God's Word and in the one gospel, okay? Because we see and recognize that if we start to allow just anything or anyone to impact the direction we're going as a church body or the decisions we make as leadership, that that trickles down into everything else that we do. And a little bit of leaven leavens the entire thing. Not just a piece of it. And Paul affirms his confidence in the Lord in verse 10. That they will take no other view, and the one who is troubling them will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So recognize here, Paul's not even sure who this is that's causing this problem. But he's calling it out and saying, I'm going I'm to trust the Lord that you guys are going to take only one view, the true gospel, because who, whoever is hindering you, this is not a persuasion of, of God. This is an earthly thing. And in verse 11, Paul does something kind of interesting. He gives a hypothetical situation. He says, if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Now, on the surface, this is kind of a confusing statement. But if you know Paul's story from Acts 9, you know that Paul was, man, he was like the, of the religious high leaders of that day and age. And he purposely set out to destroy and persecute anyone who held to salvation by faith in Christ. And it wasn't until God himself, Jesus himself, appeared to him on the road to Damascus and transformed his life that his whole focus shifted. So Paul would have been in this camp of people that say, if you're not circumcised and you're not practicing all these rules and regulations, you have no hope. And in fact, we're going to destroy you. We're going to wipe you out. And so Paul here, if I'm, if he, he's saying, if I'm still preaching circumcision, then why, why am I being persecuted? In that case, that case being what? The case that he was still preaching circumcision. If circumcision is required and is still being preached, then the offense of the cross has been removed. And then in verse 12, Paul uses some very strong language. I would highly recommend you not copy Paul's language he uses here. Okay? He says in verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Okay? And realistically, the interpretive element there that all you need to understand is Paul feels very strongly about the negative actions that the people who are hindering and tainting the true gospel of Jesus He feels very strongly about this. But I want you to understand something here. The message of the cross is offensive according to Paul's words. Why? Because the message of the cross is something that is completely absent of anything you or I are capable of. Now, here's where I want to direct you with this in the application portion. 
doing work appeals to our pride. Receiving grace takes humility. What do I mean by that? You and I love to be able to look at something we have made and get credit for it. We love to do a job, get it done, to step back and look at what we've done and go, man, I did good. I like this. And it gives me some sense of self-pride, like, man, I've successfully accomplished this. And it could be anything. It doesn't have to be a project. Some of you feel that way about your bank accounts. Man, look at where I'm at. I've done good. Some of you feel that way about your homes, about your jobs, your careers, whatever it is, okay? We get a sense of pride. It is ingrained in us that, man, I do a job well, I feel good, and I can look at what I did to get there. Grace is based in nothing you've done. And receiving that grace means I have to admit that I have done nothing to earn it. And in fact, I've done the opposite. I don't deserve it. And we struggle with that. And there are people all over the world to this day who still believe you've got to do X, Y, and Z before you're actually saved. And you can fill in the blank with all types of things. Most faiths, even ones that use the term grace, grace is a ladder lowered down into a hole, but you've still got to climb your way out. In the true gospel, grace is given through the sacrifice of Jesus. And as Paul told the jailer in the book of Acts, when he said, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe in the name of Jesus and you will be saved. Not believe and then go get circumcised and then attend, attend a, a weekly gathering and uh, you fill in the blank and make sure that you uh, do this and this and make sure that the, these are, things are all in order. There's none of that, okay? But we like that. In church, I'm here to tell you, Faith is enough. Nothing else is necessary. And at the end of the day, when we grasp the true gospel, it should bring us to a place of humility because we realize I cannot do anything to deserve this. I cannot earn it. Now, I want to close our time by looking at verses 13 through 15. And this is really where this hits home. And there's great application for us in these last few verses right here, right now. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. 
Who are you consumed by? What are you consumed by? Are we, the church, consumed by the gospel, the good news, the grace of God in Jesus? Or are we being consumed by each other? My goodness, it feels that way some days right now. Do not use your freedom, church, brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Faithfully ask yourself this week, how can I serve my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? What phone call could I make? What card could I write? What house could I stop by? How can I show the love of Christ in humility, understanding the grace I've received? And not use my freedom in Christ as an opportunity to just let my flesh run wild. That ball is in your court, church. Each one of us has a responsibility to recognize what we've been given in Jesus to recognize that in faith there's a circumcision of the heart, a transformation, a setting apart that's taken place. And in Christ, that cannot be taken away. That cannot be removed. But it has to daily be a decision for me to walk in freedom and not return to bondage. May we do that together. Amen? I'm going to ask the worship team to come. Let's Stand and pray together. Father, as we recognize the challenge of this text, may we be a people who are not consumed by legalistic frames of thought that we would recognize our salvation is only by faith in Christ and that whether we need to make that decision for the first time today or I just need to recommit myself to walking in faith, Lord, that Your Spirit would convict us of that. Lord, help us not to use our freedom as an opportunity for our flesh to run and rule, but that we would use our freedom to serve our brothers and sisters and to live in light of the grace we've been given through your Son. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.